just excited and glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I have a few things I need to call to our attention. Uh, first of all, we're glad that you're joining us on Palm Sunday, and next Sunday is Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, there's uh, something a little special, I guess, for the kids. They won't be having officially Sunday school, but they're going to be kind of doing something else. Am I understanding that right? There's something for the kids, but it's not going to be Sunday school. That's what I've been told. So uh, there will be nursery staffed next Sunday. So uh, those who are joining us will be able to have their little ones in the nursery. That will be staffed instead of parents staffing it. That will be staffed by those. Uh, also want to call your attention, we've got some many, many opportunities for ministry. Uh, there have been some that have been mentioned in the bulletin. One particular thing I want to highlight is that there's an opportunity to help with ESL. So if you're interested in helping with our English as a second language classes and tutoring and actually, actually not uh, being a one-on-one -on -one conversational English, please talk to Katie Marquardt. Uh, if you don't know who Katie is, then you can email Megan at Creekside uh, and we will put you in contact with Katie, okay? So we're glad that Katie's willing to coordinate that. She's been doing a great job of helping with so many of our uh, kind of the refugee uh, ministry there. So it's really exciting to be a part of it. So let's pray. Father, what a worshipful time this morning coming before your presence. Uh, we acknowledge that we are a needy people and that our lives are in your hands, and you are a great and an awesome God, and we come during this season of the year to reflect upon the events of 2,000 years ago that are so crucial to our faith and so important to our lives, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight that you'd give us sensitivity and that we pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts because it's easy to become dull and desensitized to the truth. I pray that you would awaken within some for the very first time an understanding of what all this is about, the Passion Week and the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and what for some of us that in new and fresh ways, we'd come to appreciate all that you've done for us. We pray you'd open our eyes this morning that we might behold wonderful truths out of your law, that we might be people who live for you, for your glory, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The closest I ever came to experiencing what it would be like to live as a royal person was when our family toured Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. Uh, so this is the Schönbrunn Palace. It's a massive structure. And I can't even remember how many rooms, but you walk through each room and you're just in awe of the immaculate details and all of the expensive items. This was the, the summer hunting lodge for the Habsburg royal family. Uh, you know, just a, just a little hunting shack uh, on I don't know how many acres of ground in Vienna. Uh, the closest I ever came to encountering royalty was a, a failed attempt to see then President Jimmy Carter at the National FFA Convention in Kansas City, Missouri in 1978. Okay? Yeah, that's how old I am. Uh, uh, there, were, there were secret service 
all along the streets. There were secret service up on the rooftops all the way around. There were, then there was a black limousines going in and out. And amidst all of that, I, I still did not see uh, the President of the United States at that time uh, until I went into a room and saw him on a big screen, which I could have seen at home on TV. You know, but those were the attempts that I had to, to see these, these royals, these royals. But we come to a passage this morning in Mark chapter 11 where the typical fanfare for a royal coming is not what we see. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is hardly the type of fanfare that you would expect for a king. But his entrance was there. For several months, Jesus had been winding and working his way back to Jerusalem. And the timing of such was meticulously worked out so that he would enter at the Passover. Okay, At the time of the Passover. This was intentional. And he had come from Galilee uh, in the region of Judea, to, uh, to the region of Judea, to, uh, in, to, Beth, to Bethany. Okay. So he was up in Galilee, and he worked his way down to Judea, to Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And just prior to that, uh, he had healed blind Bartimaeus in, in, in Jericho. Or, I mean, after that, he had healed Bartimaeus at Jericho, okay, after he'd raised Lazarus. Okay, so word had spread. Jesus is coming, and he's coming into Jerusalem. And so... The, the crowds were building in anticipation of the Passover, but also in anticipation of the fact that they were going to see Jesus. And the tension was mounting because the religious leaders were wanting to see this Jesus exterminated because the people were following after him. And we just read that they had said in Luke's gospel, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus didn't tell them to be quiet. Religious leaders are hostile. So we, we have all this culminating. They were even wanting and seeking that leaders were his death. It tells us that in John chapter 12. And so Matthew, or Mark, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, uh, records his deliberate and calculated entrance into to Jerusalem. For the very first time, Jesus is actually publicly declaring or allowing it to be declared he's the king. And that's where we pick up. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to read the text where we see Jesus' entry recorded here. It provides us three, I think, unmistakable indications of his royalty, that he is the king. And these indications serve to inspire his followers, or are intended to inspire his followers. I hope that's what it does. It encourages me. Hopefully it will encourage all of you if you know the Lord. And then to incite those who don't know Jesus to, to trust him as their savior. See, yeah, he really is the king. I'm in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1 down through verse 14. And the, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, tied there and on which, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, 
What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from their fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I deliberately yelled a little bit there, okay, because it was a lot of people, and they were yelling, okay. It's a little unsettling for us Westerners to think about this, but it was probably a pretty raucous crowd, okay. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. We see at least three indications of Jesus' royalty that I think should, for believers, provide us with encouragement. And if you're a skeptic or you're not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, it should at least alert you to the fact that something's going on here. Hopefully it will incite you to at least become more curious and perhaps even to see Jesus as the king. The first is that our Lord arrives like a king. Verse 1, and they, as they approached Jerusalem... Okay, so he's coming from Jericho, chapter 11, verse 46. Uh, uh, he, had, uh, um, he had, blind Bartimaeus was, was uh, healed. And as one enters Bethany, okay, as you enter Bethany, you're two miles east of Jerusalem. Okay, so let's just pretend this is east. So he's coming from Jericho, and he gets to, to Bethany. He's two miles east of Jerusalem, so he's working his way towards Jerusalem, and then he comes to uh, the, around the south side of the mountain, Mount of Olives, to Bethphage, and then there's Jerusalem. So he sends the disciples into Bethphage, this small little village there, to get this donkey. Donkey's colt. That's what he says. Go get the donkey's colt. Verses 2 and 3, and they... There was to be a village there, and there's going to be a donkey tied up, and you, uh, ask, you take the donkey. If somebody says something to you, you just say, the Lord needs it, and they'll let him do it. And that's exactly the way it played out. The way the Lord said, this is exactly how it played out. Now, I don't know about you, but it's like, how did Jesus know that? And what's up? Uh, Jesus have secret police that were going ahead of him to, to you know, scope it out and then report back to him? I don't think so. I think Jesus just knew. It's a symbol of his, his deity. Uh, about just a little over a year ago, it was March 11th of 2020, I flew to Phoenix, Arizona to see my parents. I had no idea that as I was in flight that I was going to land there and two days later, pandemic panic was going to hit the country. It was just I had no idea because I'm a human being and I don't know what I don't know. Well, that's because human beings don't know what they don't know. But Jesus knows everything. And so he knew that this was going to happen, and it happened. And it was a donkey upon which no one had ever yet sat. 
So there's a few things that struck me as I looked at this passage and as I think about the fact of Jesus going, his disciples going, getting a donkey, bring it back for him, a donkey on which no one had ever sat. So first thing I thought about was Jesus is the ultimate horse whisperer or donkey whisperer, okay? Because you just don't get on an unbroken or a non-gentled beast, four-legged beast, and just ride it into town like nothing's going on, you know? I don't know how many have ever been to a rodeo or you've seen a rodeo on TV, but the buck and bronx, you know, you think, boy, uh, these things, how are you going to stand on it? Now, I'm sure the, the foal, the colt, wasn't as big as this horse, but, you know, little ones can buck pretty bad too, and donkeys are even a little bit more stubborn and notorious than horses sometimes, so bad. Second thing that struck me here was that it was a foal upon which no one had ever yet ridden, and even aside from the fact that it was a miraculous event that it hadn't been ridden before, it was a spiritually significant event that it hadn't been ridden before because in the Old Testament scriptures, something used for holy purposes could never have been used for ordinary purposes. So this was an unridden donkey used the very first time for giving a ride to the king of kings. It was not ever had been used for common use. Now it was being used for a spiritually significant use. But probably of greatest significance to me or importance to me, although those other things are interesting and the second one may be more important than the first, is that uh, Jesus in choosing this animal, and this was the selection, uh, to make this selection, he made it absolutely clear that he was the king, that he was the king. You see, some 500 years before this, the the prophet Zechariah had actually declared that this was going to be the way it was going to happen, and you see the text on the screen, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Interesting, right? Shout in triumph. What were they doing? Shouting in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and endowed with salvation. He's bringing salvation. What were they crying? Hosanna, save now. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's coming on a donkey. His choice to ride the colt was a deliberate kingly act in fulfillment of this prophecy written 500 years previously. And it conveyed to the people in that day, the exact same thing as if you and I see this airplane, Air Force One. If we see it, boom. Oh, it's not our king, but it's our our leader is coming. The same thing. They knew it in their mind. And the the fact remains that uh, they, the the, the king was supposed to be born where? Where did the Bible say it? In Micah chapter 5 too. Bethlehem, right? The king was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The king was also supposed to ride in on a donkey (laughs) into Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus was doing. So Mark's deliberate inclusion of this this humble kingly confirmation was there. It it would embolden the readers. Now, the first readers were, the ones that Mark had written the gospel to, were under Nero's persecution. 
So they were like, oh yeah, it, we're, we're pretty suppressed. And it doesn't seem very stately that Jesus is riding on this king, uh, on this donkey. But guess what? In the Davidic kingdom, for in David's time, the king rode on a donkey. But not in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, it would have been a horse. But he rose on a donkey because he was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. And David, David's king, he would have ridden on a donkey. So it seems kind of subservient, but actually it was the demonstration. So as you're a subservient person under Nero's persecution, and you see the king riding in on a donkey, you get emboldened to say, yes, even though it doesn't seem like we're in charge, even though it doesn't seem like things are going our way, God is still in charge. He's still in control. And it should encourage us. Yeah, you know, as a Christian, and Christians seem to be... Uh, subservient, we seem to be put down, it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is, you know, in charge of things. Well, guess what? That's kind of how Jesus came into this world, right? Declaring that he's the king. Yeah, one day he's going to ride in on a horse, right? Revelation, he's coming in on a white horse as the king. Here he came in on a donkey as the king. And so he was there to encourage. Then and now, We're called to accept him as the king. You see, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all in our life. So I ask you this morning, is he Lord or is he not? In verse 3 of Mark chapter 11, it says, why are you doing this? You say, if they ask you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of him. What does the Lord mean? Lord means master. It means ruler. It means our owner. It's our savior. He demands full allegiance. You see, Jesus came in peace. The text of Zechariah chapter 9 says he came humble, riding on a, humble in peace. He wasn't riding on a white horse with his swords drawn. That's coming. You see the difference? You see the contrast? What he was doing there was setting up the stage. So that's why they were confused. That's what they weren't expecting. But he's coming. He came in humble, offering peace. He came in peace, offering to give peace, to bring peace, peace with God, and peace from God. That's Jesus, what he came to do. He came to give peace with God to anyone who would accept him as the king, repent of their sins, turn and trust in Jesus in his death on the cross as a payment for their sin, and accept that his resurrection will pave the way for our resurrection. So that we can have peace with God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do we have justification? Justification comes by faith. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says he was delivered up on account of our sins. He was raised again in order to bring about our justification. So it's through faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. He brings peace with God. And he brings peace from God. Okay? The peace from God. As we surrender, as his subjects surrender to him, as we his subjects surrender our lives to him, surrender our time, surrender our energy, surrender our money, surrender our talents to him, everything. And as we remain unswervingly committed to Obey and serve him, regardless of whatever persecution comes. Remember, those 
under Nero's reign, they were under persecution. We must remember that he's in control. Whatever the problem. I asked this morning, I asked myself, does, does the Lord control my heart? You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does he control my heart so that my words are complimentary rather than critical? Does he control my heart so that they're encouraging rather than discouraging or disparaging to the people around me? When other people succeed, they're promoted, they get advanced, they get an encouragement. Am I happy, praising, or envious? Are we honest and considerate and caring with those we love the most? Or are we deceptive and insensitive? Do I care about my family? Do I care about my neighbors? Do I care about my coworkers? Or am I deceptive and dishonest and, and deceitful around them? Do I rest that God has it, you know? I mean, I, all of us have all kinds of stuff going on in our lives, let alone in the world. Is God in charge? Can I surrender to him? He's in control despite the opposition I face. Ah, he is supreme, regardless of whatever regime in this world, world says otherwise. Okay, He is sovereign, regardless of whatever regime says otherwise. He arrived as the king. Then he was acknowledged as the king. Our Lord is acknowledged as the king. There are two ways. The multitude. Now, what is this multitude? Who is this multitude? Well, they were moving in for the Passover, right? But then you realize he was in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And John's gospel tells us that there were people there who were, had been juiced up and hyped up when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're getting excited again. Jesus is back. Okay. And then there was a bunch of people who had heard about him ra or healing blind Bartimaeus. And so they're all excited. And so you have all these people gathering. You have the, the, the curiosity seekers looking for a miracle, looking to be around the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, the, uh, the mosh pit crowd, you know, the, the, the people that are just following along to be along with everybody else. And then you have those who are genuinely going to worship at the Passover, and they maybe just get caught up in everything. But they're there, okay? And how do they acknowledge him? They teach us how to worship the king. Well, through their works. Verse 8, it says, And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut out from the fields. And then John's gospel tells us that they laid down palm branches. Yes? They laid down in, in verse 13 of John chapter 12. So they were putting out the red carpet for Jesus. Okay? laying out the red carpet for him to go in on. They were acknowledging their own submission to him. They were elevating his position as the king. And they were anticipating and celebrating that he was bringing victory. I didn't know this, but uh, in, the, in the first Maccabean revolt, which preceded uh, all this, they laid down palm branches to celebrate as a, as a symbol of their victory. Ah, and now they're laying, oh, another Maccabean revolt, if you will. They are there to celebrate what God, but symbolically they're saying, we surrender all. Some of you know that song, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. They were surrendering all. 
acknowledging his authority over everything. Is, 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 is our income used f- just for our benefit or for the advancement of the kingdom? Do I surrender my pride at the feet of Jesus and pray for and grieve over those with whom I disagree? My obnoxious neighbors, those you know, misguided people who have a different political view than me. My family members who just I can't see eye to eye with. Am I willing to surrender my pride and pray for them and grieve over those with spiritual blindness? My classmates, maybe it's our people in our neighborhood, whatever, whoever those people are. Or do I just get mad at them? I mean, it's easy to get mad, right? It's harder to grieve and, and to pray for those with whom we disagree. Will I abandon my comforts for the, uh, and safety for the sake of the kingdom? I, I know right now of, of a family who's uh, exposing themselves supposedly you know, to COVID uh, to host people from overseas because their family's going through an emergency. I know of people in our own congregation who last year went to Haiti in the height of the pandemic who sacrificed their own safety and freedom for the sake of the kingdom. Are we willing to do that? Surrender all. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Do we submit to biblical theology rather than human philosophy in determining my political perspective on issues? in my own personal opinion on a lot of stuff, or in my understanding of cultural norms. I mean, this is a huge issue in our culture, folks. Biblical theology is being sacrificed in the altar of human philosophy. Where humanistic philosophies come in and say, well, because this is what the culture expects, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to think. This is how you need to treat other people. And it's not biblical. It has nothing to do with... The true theology of the scripture is not submission to Jesus, it's submission to some other authority. And we need to avoid it. Do I surrender my pursuits and my passions and my preferences in what I watch and what I listen to and where I go so that I guard my heart, as Solomon said, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flows the issues of life in Proverbs 4, 23. This is what it means to surrender. Then it was through their words. Hosanna, they said. Exuberant joy, a great chorus of people singing out Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. What does it mean? Save us. Save now. Save. That's what Hosanna means. So they were giving voice to the work of the Messiah. If you remember in Zechariah chapter 9, it said that he would be the one who brought salvation, carrying salvation. That they knew that he was the one to bring salvation. So they're crying out, save us now. Problem was, these original people didn't have a clue as to the full orb of his salvation. They didn't totally understand what he was going to save them from. They thought he was only coming to save them from political oppression and their physical ailments. They didn't see that he came ultimately to deliver us from our spiritual degeneration, to bring 
redemption, to deliver us from the tyranny of sin in our lives. And you know what? It's the same mistake that's being made even in the church today. Because in the church today, many are preaching that Jesus is useful to deliver us from oppression. But not pointing us to the fact that he is here and was here and is living now to deliver us from spiritual damnation. He's here to deliver us from our sin. That's why he came. And then he said, blessed is he. If you look at at Mark's gospel, it says in verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, they specifically say, blessed is the king. So they're identifying him as the king. Now, in in Mark and Matthew, they don't, the, the writers didn't do that. But in John and Luke, they say, blessed is the king. That's why, that's why the scribes and Pharisees in Luke's gospel were saying, hey, tell them to be quiet. You, you can't, they can't be talking about you as the king. But that's who he was. And they're quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. They're singing this psalm out to the people. This is the king. He's coming. He's coming. And he is blessed. It's his character. That's who he is, his character. So not only his work his mission of salvation, but his majesty, his character. He is the king. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our praise. What the crowds missed then, uh, that Jesus wasn't coming to set up the kingdom right there, that he wasn't going to have it right, the full meaning of the kingdom, they didn't get that. Those in Nero's day and those of us today get it from this word, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's really disturbing to me is that there were many probably in this crowd crying out now, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that were among those who were crying a few days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And what it does to me is it's it's a big caution. It's a sober reminder of how easy it is to give lip service to Christ. And give lip service to his lordship. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, uh, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And that day he'll say, I never knew you. What? That's That's a sober reminder, especially for those of us in the church who grew up in the church. We can say, Lord, Lord. And we're willing, like Peter, oh, Lord, I will never deny you. I will stand beside you all the way. Yeah, yeah, right, Peter. It's a sober reminder. You know, it's kind of interesting because uh, when I was growing up, we, we would go to these youth conferences and we'd go to camp and we'd get our spiritual, you know, supercharge, you know, our, our spiritual Red Bull. You know, that, that was like we're just drinking from a fire hose, uh, you know, our five-hour energy. We're taking it in, taking it in. And adults, you know, you go to conferences, you go, we go to concerts and like, oh, drinking in all this good Christian stuff. And then the question is, when we come home, Did our crying out in those emotionally charged events, Lord, Lord, translate into, young people, uh, more submissive to your parents on a consistent basis, obedient and willingly, cheerfully obedient to your parents, to adults, uh, just more 
understanding and gracious towards my co-workers and my family members. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but sometimes the question is, does it really mean to us what we say? And this is the thing I see in the text here. Do we submit? Most of us, you know, really want a God who serves our purposes and fulfills our desires and meets our needs on our terms. That's kind of basically how we approach God. And I like Dallas Willard. He put it this way. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. And one of the biggest problems we have is we like to deify ourselves. That means make a God out of ourself. And he put it this way. He says, if God is running the universe and has first claim on our lives, guess who isn't running the universe and does not get to have things as they please? If God's in charge... I'm not. And I can't tell God, well, I can, but it's pointless, how things should go. You see, our tendency is to treat God like a genie in a bottle. And we've, out comes a genie, give us our three wishes, and we're good. That's not how God works. We'd like, I remember, I remember one time, uh, several years ago, I was sitting on the foothills of a mountain, I was out there in the morning, and I was uh, having my devotions, and I looked across this vast valley in front of me to the mountain peaks on the other side. And I remember thinking in my spiritual state, God, why didn't you make me wealthy enough to buy a bunch of this land so I could own it? You see, a, a lack of contentment is a dismissal of God's mission and disregard for his majesty. It's a lie of the enemy that I need something other than what God is providing for me at that moment, at that time. I don't want to sing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in some sort of a trite, trivial, and insincere way. No. With sincerity and gratitude, I want to I sing it. Disregard. Arrogance fails to surrender to and sing to the king praises worthy of his name, regardless of whatever's happening in my life. See, only when I see that the salvation that he brings, through faith in his son, who died for me and rose again to purchase our salvation as supreme and then surrender to him regardless of the circumstances, then I'll sing. Then I can sing Hosanna to the son of David. Then my praises will be sincere. And that's what I want. And it isn't always true. But God is gracious and God is loving and he's patient with us and he allows us to grow and mature in it. You see, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. His arrival was kingly. He was acknowledged as the king through their works and their words. And finally, our Lord acts like the king when he comes into Jerusalem. And the two actions that mark him out as, as our king. First of all, the, the Lord's compassion. Now in this text, we don't see it. Okay? But in the parallel text in Luke chapter 19, we see that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He saw the city, and he wept over it. 
He was grieved over their proud and unrepentant hearts of the people that would result in grievous devastation that he was predicting as we go through this text. What happened to them as Jerusalem was destroyed? His tender heart uh, grieves over the rebellion that leads to devastation. It, it did then, it does now. And Jesus is not pleased when we are stubborn and rebellious, when we walk our own way. No, his heart grieves because he desires that all should come to repentance. Not that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. And so he's not pleased with that. I ask you this morning, does the Lord grieve over your lack of repentance? Over your blatant rebellion against him? And this is only for those who are unbelievers. If you're a believer, he grieves over your, your unrepentance not in the sense that you're not his child, but that you've been separated from fellowship with him. Then confess your sin, for he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us into fellowship. But if you're here this morning and you're living in rebellion against God, he grieves over you because he knows that your, your destiny is apart from him and he wants you to turn and trust him. And then we see his kingly activity in, in, in condemnation. In verses 12 through 14, after grieving over the city, uh, he entered into the temple, but it was late in the evening, so he went back to Bethany, spent the night, came back the next day, and on the way he gets hungry. An interesting story. If you're reading in verse 13, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went over, he went to see if it, perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. If I were to go to Arizona in July and drive down the freeway and see an orange grove and see the trees all growing with the leaves on them and walk out into the orange grove, I would not be able to pick any oranges because they're not ripe yet, not there yet. Foliage is full, but there's no fruit on the tree. And you say, well, why didn't Jesus know that? He knew that there was going to be a donkey full tied to a thing in Bethphage. Uh, what, what's going on here? <laughs> so this is a case of Jesus uh, just not knowing what's going on. It wasn't the season. See, he knew it wasn't the season for figs. My understanding of it was. But he used the situation to stimulate curiosity. The disciples going, well, what's up with Jesus? I mean, why is, why is he going over here for this fig tree and looking for figs when we know there's no figs? To, to highlight something of spiritual significance because he was giving a picture of the circumstances of the people in Jerusalem at the time. The fig tree with full foliage but no fruit pictured the situation in Jerusalem. Full foliage. Hey, they look great, right? They're having the Passover. Everything's hunky-dory. We're having a spiritual celebration. We're doing spiritual stuff. We got no fruit. That's what Jesus was picturing. See, the Old Testament prophets oftentimes described the, the relationship, the, the status of God's people using fig trees. And the judgment on the fig tree was a parallel judgment on God's people in the Old Testament. You can see it in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, and Micah chapter 7. And then the destruction depicts judgment. Israel in Jesus' day is the fig tree. Okay. And his curse, which he said, 
no one may ever eat from you again, serves as a parable for what was happening to Israel. Jesus was prophetically warned Israel, the fig tree, about the coming judgment, which was going to happen 40 years later when Jerusalem was destroyed, that came about as a result of their spiritual hard-heartedness and their spiritual lack of sincerity. And he prefigured it when he went into the temple and ransacked the temple. It was his indictment against their spiritual insensitivity that was prophetic that something worse was coming. The fig tree is going to wither, and we see later that the disciples saw, well, the fig tree's withered. Well, duh. And this should, res- this should result in a response, because Jesus is going to do that, a response of faith. We can trust that God's word is true. He's going to do what he said. Our foliage without fruit is no less disconcerting to God. Spiritual looking, but no fruit doesn't cut it with him. He's equally disturbed. And I think this is kind of unorthodox, the way Jesus went about this, right? He rolled in on, rode in on a, a donkey, and then he's, uh, he's cursing fig trees, and it seems like he's not in control at all, but this unorthodox method gives confidence that God is still working. See, he wrote in on a donkey. He seemed like he's pretty, uh, you know, obscure, pretty minuscule guy. Then he does this thing with the fig tree and he pronounces judgment. Seven years later, it happens. He, he goes to the cross. He dies. He rises from the dead. All this stuff happens. He's still working. In spite of what looks to us like nothing big is going on, Jesus is in control. And that should be encouragement to us. Because I don't know about you, but if I listen to much news, I read much on the newspaper, I hear about what's happening in people's lives, I'm going, oh boy, what is going on? And then I read this, riding in on a donkey, the king, cursing a fig tree when there's no figs on the tree, and he knows he grew up in that region, he knew there's no trees, figs on the trees at this time. Oh yeah, but he's a symbol. And what happened? What he prophetically symbolized and mentioned there actually came about and came happened. He's in charge. You see, he's a saving God. And he is our sovereign king. A sovereign king who supplies our needs. A sovereign king who superintends over our circumstances. A sovereign God and Savior who saves people from their sin through us for His glory in His time. A sovereign God and a saving King who secures our future. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. My home is beyond the shore, way above the blue. Okay? Now that's a very, very poor quote of of uh, Brumley's hymn, okay, or poem. But it's true. This world is not my home. He secures our future. Jesus is merciful to save any and all who would repent and turn. He's writing in, Hosanna. Save now. And mighty to judge the rebellious and the religious imposters. That's the king that we worship 
And as a king, he calls us to surrender. He calls us to surrender our lives to him. He calls us to embrace his mercy. He calls us to rest in his control of our lives, his goodness. Marla and I were flying. We're in the airport, and both of us got singled out or picked out to be uh, interrogated, not necessarily interrogated, but we got patted, we got prodded, we got poked, we got searched. You know. Why? To prove our identity, that, that we were who we said we were, that we were there for the right reason. Jesus proved who he was when he rode in on that donkey. And it requires or calls for some response. If you are here or you're listening and you don't know Christ, you've never put your faith or your trust in his death as a payment for your sin, trusting that when he rose from the dead, he set the stage so that you could be raised to new life again. Do you need more evidence than what Jesus has presented here? Are you really seriously curious? If you are, then I'd suggest you read the Gospel of John. Start there. And if you're ready to put your faith or trust in Christ, then do that. Just cry out and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sinfulness. I turn from my sin and I accept you to be my Lord and my master. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I read this week, so Christianity is not really a very good hobby. You know, I mean, you're kind of either all in or all out. And if you know Christ is your Savior, then as I read through the text, there's comfort. Mark's readers were suffering persecution. Nero was the one who used Christians to light as lamps. He would torch them, burn them at the stake to light the streets so that people could walk into the city. After he had his little temper tantrum because uh, there was a fire and he blamed the Christians for it because the Christians were getting too much press. Too much good press, and he wanted them taken. This was the persecution these people were suffering, and comfort. Our king's on a donkey? Yeah. It's totally ironic. It doesn't seem fit, but he's here, and he's in charge. And we, too, remember he's in charge. I don't know if you heard anything about this week. USA Today, big stuff going on now with the NCAA tournament, you know, March Madness and uh, Oral Roberts University. There was an article by the sports editor of USA Today that excoriated the, the NCAA, basically actually excoriated Oral Roberts University, saying that Oral Roberts University should absolutely not even be permitted to play in the NCAA tournament because they have a code of conduct, of morality that is totally consistent with the scripture, but totally reprehensible to the culture. And so for that reason alone, because of Oral Roberts' standard of conduct, moral conduct, because they actually believe that, uh, you know, premarital sex is wrong, because they actually believe that men and women should treat each other with respect, they actually believe that, you know, you should have decency and that, you know, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and I could go on and on and on. They should not be in the NCAA tournament. doesn't matter how well they play basketball. That's not the point. The point is that they're on the wrong side of history when it comes to their morality. That's the world we live in. And you and I could get outraged, and sometimes I do, 
but we need to be resting, comforted in, in Jesus' control of life. And then commit ourselves to live in surrender to Christ in every area. Psalm 94 verse 12 says, the Lord knows even our thoughts. Whew. Yeah, and people say, well, I don't, I don't sin. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, you don't have any jealous thoughts. You don't, you don't have any covetous thoughts. You, know, you don't wish that you had something that somebody else had. You don't wish that you could sit on a mountainside and wish you had enough money to buy all that land. And, you know, you don't drive through some neighborhoods and say, ooh, I wish I had that car. You're driving. You never told a lie. You never stole anything. You never looked on a woman for lust. You're, you're just kidding yourself. We are all sinners. But commit to live as best we can by God's grace and for His glory through the Spirit's work in us to surrender to the King. He is Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And the salvation that the crowds cried out for, Hosanna saved now. Just a few days later, Jesus purchased when He died on the cross. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that he was a fulfillment of the very thing that they were proclaiming, providing salvation to all who would believe that his death paid the debt that they owed for their sin and that his resurrection proved that he conquered sin and death so that all who believe in him would be united with him not only his death and his burial, but also in his resurrection. And so in the next few moments, as you meditate on these thoughts, as you search your heart, confess any known sin, think about what Jesus did. And as God leads you, then take the bread and take the, the, the juice and drink it in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that he was obedient, obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross that he would purchase our pardon and help us, Father, to acknowledge him, not just through our lips, but through our lives as King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.